Hey guys, welcome. So glad you're uh, tuning in, hanging out with us today. I'm Dan, if I've never met you. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here and love the fact that we get to come in to your living room, car, uh, wherever you're at, kitchen, and uh, spend this time with you. Bible's open to 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, as you're doing that, get a piece of paper, some things to write, some notes down. I think it's going to be important today. Uh, let me say this first. I got my Grace Student Ministry shirt on. So excited this week. We had 50 teenagers at youth conference. So excited to hear from them what God has done and is doing in their life. Uh, it's been a really, really busy summer. We've had teams in LA, New Mexico, Mexico, South Carolina. And uh, so we're really, really excited about what God is doing here. It's fun to hear these people come back from being in different cultures and share with us the different things that are going on. Uh, team in Mexico was talking about some of the uh, things that they experienced together. Maybe think this, I don't know if you've ever been to a different culture, different country. Uh, when you go there, it becomes really, really quick, uh, obvious to you that there are things that they do that you're not familiar with. I remember going to Argentina, and uh, every house we went to, really, really quickly, you could tell who the Americans were, right? Uh, not only by the way we looked, but they all knew what to do. Uh, when you walk into a house in Argentina, everybody kisses each other uh, on the cheek. And we were like, what? <laughs> we, don't, like, like, we didn't do that when I was growing up. I grew in the mountains, right? And, and then uh, they pass around this little wooden cup, sometimes it's wooden, uh, with like grass in the bottom of it, with hot water over it. And everybody takes a drink from the same straw. And you know, I can remember first, like, what are we doing? And I'm supposed to drink that? Like, you're very unfamiliar because it's not your culture. Uh, it's something that's not, not familiar to you. Same thing's true in church. Some of you guys grew up in church, but some of you didn't. And so when you go to church, you can feel like you're going to a foreign country, right? Like there's this whole other culture and they're doing things like, why are they doing that? And it seems like everybody knows where to go and what to say and when to stand, right? Even if you grew up in church, sometimes when you go to another church, uh, their tradition and their culture can be so different that Everybody knows when to stand, what to say, and it's not how you grew up. And so you feel very much out of it. You're like, I don't understand what's going on. One of the things that many churches have and they experience together, maybe in different ways, you'll see here on my table, uh, is, is this thing called the bread and the cup. The, some of you have used the word Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper, and uh, Paul, today in 1 Corinthians 11, is going to talk to this church that we've been looking at, this church in Corinth, because they are a jacked up church. That's what we've been saying, right? Jacked up. And he's addressing things. He's gotten letters about questions. And they even found a way to jack up the communion part of their service. And so in 1 Corinthians 11 is where we're going to be today. I want you to look at it with me, because here's what it says. It says this. Beginning verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. That's not the way you want somebody to start out. For your meetings do more harm than good. He says, y'all's church services, they're actually doing more harm than they are good. That is not something you want somebody to say about your church. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it, he says. No doubt there have to be. Now read this. I think he's being sarcastic here. No doubt there has to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. You have to have that. So you can well, I'm the one God's approval. Uh, so then when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead on your own private suppers. We're going to talk about that. As a result, one person remains hungry. Another gets drunk. 
Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? What sh- shall I praise you? He says, certainly not in this matter. <laughs> not going to happen is what he says. Now, let's just stop for a minute. We're going to keep reading here in a second. Why in the world is Paul so peeved at them? Well, we've got to get some understanding. They're, they're gathering and, uh, as a church, and he's upset about the way the Lord's Supper communion uh, is being celebrated and participated in. And to understand why he's peeved, you kind of got to understand that many of the churches in that particular culture and that particular time would have met probably in homes. And in these homes, they would have celebrated like a Sunday service. And during that Sunday service, they would have had the Lord's Supper, communion. Uh, Many of the times they would meet maybe in a wealthy person's home because their home would have been bigger. And their home would have had a layout, something like this, where there would have been this big open space, the atrium. We get our word atrium from that, right? But they would have had this little space over here, this little dining room area, the triclinium. And apparently, uh, through some archaeological digs and just different things, uh, what was happening was when they would celebrate the service at a wealthy person's home, that a lot of the wealthy people were getting there early. Some think because they didn't have to work. And so they'd get there early on a Sunday, and they would gather in this triclinium, which had room for about 12 people, normally. And they would share all the good food, and they would have this incredible feast, and they would drink all the good wine, right? And, and, and even some of them are getting drunk at church. <laughs> That's what we just read. And then those who were poorer would come, and there was no room in there because it was full, so they're kind of in the overflow in the atrium, and they have to eat the leftover food, and they have to drink the cheap wine, right? And what Paul is saying is this, y'all are gathering and you're making a mockery of what this service is to be about. Which led Paul to say this, he wants then he says, well, let's go back and review what this is all about. What I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Now let's just stop. Luke tells us a little bit about this. In Luke 22, you can write this down, that Jesus on the Passover, so they were going to celebrate Passover, and he was going to celebrate that with his disciples. And he gave them instructions about going into town, find a man, he'll have a room, it'll be set up, and that's where we're going to celebrate Passover. And the Passover meal would have been something that was very important to the Jewish people. Very important. They would have celebrated the cup probably four times during that meal for different things. One of the times maybe to commemorate uh, when Joseph's brothers dipped his robe in the blood and told their dad he's dead. But, But it would have commemorated. Four times they would have taken it. They would have had some bitter herbs on the table that they would have dipped their food in occasionally to remind them of the bitterness of their time in Egypt. They would have had unleavened bread, unleavened because the book of Exodus tells us that they had to leave Egypt so quickly that the bread didn't have time to rise. (laughs) And then they would have had the lamb. There would have been the sacrificial lamb, the lamb they would have had because it was the lamb that was their vehicle of rescue. They would have taken the lamb and they would have placed the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death would have passed over their house. And so on that night, 
where they're celebrating that feast, remembering those things, very important to the Jewish people, he took bread. Would have been common. But on this night, he changes everything. He gave thanks. That was normal. He broke it. And then he said this, this bread is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He totally changes the paradigm. He changes the picture. In the same way, after they had eaten their supper, so they went through the Passover supper, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant. Something new is happening in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He said, this is a whole new imagery. And every time you gather now around the communion table, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, that this is the picture. Very important and sacred moment when the church gathers around these elements, so to speak, which led Paul to say this. So whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, we're going to come back to that, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That doesn't sound good, <laughs> right? So he's like, you do this unworthily, you're going to be sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus. Everyone, who ought, everyone ought to examine themselves for the eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, he's talking to the church. When you gather together to eat, you should all eat together, wait for each other, be hospitable. Anyone who's hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I may give further directions. I will give further directions. Paul is looking at them saying, hey, listen, you guys have jacked up this whole service. Jesus instituted it. Jesus is the one who started it, had a whole new picture working out there. And now when y'all come together, the rich are getting together, feasting, getting drunk, going home from church drunk. The poor are coming. There's nothing left for them. They get the cheap leftovers. And he says, what you're missing is the spirit, the purpose, the meaning, and the the, the, the whole message behind what Jesus was doing on that night he was betrayed. And so Paul has to give them a theology of communion. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to tell them that communion is this proclamation. It's a unique participation that requires an examination. Maybe you ought to write that down. That the communion, the bread and the cup, is a proclamation but it goes way beyond just being a proclamation. It is this unique participation. And because it is that, it requires an intense, I would say, examination. Let's look at the first. It's proclamation. Here's what Jesus says. You go back, circle this in your Bibles. He says, whenever you eat this bread, drink this cup, you say it out loud. What's the word? Proclaim. The Greek word there is to announce, to declare. 
What Jesus is saying is when you eat the bread, drink the cup, when you go to church, whether your church does it once a month, once a quarter, every Sunday, whenever, that's what he says. He doesn't say this amount of time. He says whenever, however often, whenever you do it, you're making a declaration about some truths that revolve around the gospel. First is this, if you're taking notes, I'd write this down, that this is a proclamation of grace. Proclamation of grace. Guys, remember this, that Jesus, when he first did this, he didn't just do this out of the blue. They were celebrating Passover. All of these things on the table would have had meaning. And if you think about it, the Passover was this celebration of remembering that through the lamb, with the blood on the doorpost, God rescues Israel from the slavery of the Pharaoh. But now what Jesus does in communion is that through Jesus, now the Lamb of God, God rescues the world from slavery to sin and death. Here's the proclamation. You ought to write this down. The proclamation of grace is this. Jesus took my place at the cross so I could take a place at his table. <laughs> uh, big words for it in the Bible. That's what substitutionary atonement means. That Jesus took my place at the cross. That's what we're proclaiming. Jesus, you took my place. I didn't deserve it. There's nothing I did to make myself worthy of it. You took my place at the cross. That's grace. I get what I don't deserve. You know what that tells me? You and I need rescued. If the gospel's true, then here's what it starts with, that you and I need rescued because we're sinners and we can be saved or rescued because Jesus took my place. He paid the debt that I owe and what he does is he died the death that I deserve to die. That's what we're proclaiming. And when I say yes to him, I receive the blessing that I could never earn or achieve. That's the gospel. And he says, this is my body for you. You know what that tells me? That tells me this, that when I say yes to Jesus, I can have forgiveness of sin. I'm part of the family of God. That because he took my place at the cross, he paid for my sin so that I could have a place at the table as part of the family of God. And he says, this is my body for you. Here's the proclamation. We're saying this, that the gospel is exclusive. We're saying, Jesus, you are the only way to forgiveness of sin and a relationship with God and a participation in the family of God. Like Jesus, you are the only way. It is a declaration that is exclusive, but it is a declaration that is inclusive. That's good news. He says, for you, for who? For you. Oh, Dan, but you don't know. He says, for you. No qualifiers. He's saying it's for you. Whatever your past is, whatever your regret is, whatever the shame is, no one else needs to know about. He's saying, I give my body, that's the gospel. I sacrificed myself for you. That's the declaration. And here's the deal. Jesus took my place at the cross so that I could have a place at his table. He has saved a seat for you. I don't know if you ever walked into a crowded cafeteria. We used to do this at college and you just pray. There was a seat available and that there was somewhere you could sit. 
And man, was it always, it's always was good news when somebody's like, hey, Dan, over here, I got a seat for you right here. <laughs> Communion is us recognizing that because of what Jesus did on the cross, he's saying, come over here, I got a seat for you. Communion, when we take the bread and the cup, we're saying, we remember not to forget that it is by grace that you are saved. By grace alone, in Christ alone, faith alone. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever said yes to him? That's what this is. It's a proclamation of grace. It's not just some sort of religious ritual. And meals were very important to them. So in the middle of this Passover, Jesus is totally kind of giving this different picture and he's attached to this old meal that they have been celebrating for hundreds of years. But listen, Jesus doesn't just attach the bread and the cup to that meal, that Passover meal, but he attaches it to one in the future. That as they celebrate this meal, look at what he says. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Say it out loud, the yellow. Until what? Until he comes. Jesus promised them and he promises you and he promises me that he's coming back. John 14, if I go, I'm going to come back. I'm preparing a place for you, but I'm going to come and get you. That's why the celebration of the Lord's Supper, every time we partake of communion together, whether the bread and the cup in your tradition here at Grace Church, uh, we partake of a fuller communion. We have a meal together. They would have had a meal together. This would have been a meal. Uh, we have a fuller communion that we celebrate this in. But, but whatever your tradition is, every time you partake of the bread and the cup, it's not only a proclamation of grace, he took my place at the cross so I could have a place at his table, but it's a proclamation of hope. You ought to write that down. Some of you need to hear that today because as we share the bread and the cup, in that moment, he is reminding them of his promise to come again. And when he comes again, here's the deal, he's gonna make all things new. And many things will mark the moment Jesus comes again. But one of the things that Revelation 19 says will mark the moment is there's going to be this big feast, this meal called, write this down somewhere, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as Jesus is giving them this picture, it's a picture of hope and anticipation of the renewal when Jesus, King Jesus, will come and he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to make all things new. He's going to rule and he's going to reign. It reminds me of, we've talked about this before, if you've been listening for any length of time, the book of Revelation. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be, say it with me, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I came across this, uh, this blog where this guy um, on his website had this picture. I love it. It's a tombstone with a little boy jumping out of his wheelchair. And he was writing as he was in, kind of reflecting on Revelation. And he made his own list. We've done this many times here. What won't be in heaven? In heaven, there will be no more acne, aches, addiction, anxiety, anxiety meds, amber alerts, amputations, bad breath, body odors, broken hearts, broken homes, breakups, bills, bill collectors, bullying, 
battles, cancer, coughs, and he goes from A to Z. There will be no more conflict, crash diets, CPS, concussions, courtrooms, corruption, chemotherapy, cutting, deception, depression, divorce, drama, doctors, disease, double chins, evil, erosion. He goes the whole way down, gossip, greed, graves, no more. It tells me something about communion. That when you and I take communion, it's a proclamation of hope. And I want you to write this down. That our suffering and disappointment in this life and even death has a shelf life. Communion is that proclamation for the follower of Jesus. That it is a proclamation that I am saved by grace. And it is a proclamation that my suffering, my disappointment, that the struggles that we have have a shelf life. In the early church, uh, a German theologian that I was reading this last week uh, wrote this, that many times in our churches, sometimes when people worship, they raise their hands, and that's perfectly fine, and we lift our hands to heaven. But many times what they would do is they would, even around the Lord's Supper, lift their hands this way, because the cross and the message of the cross was a sign of triumph. They recognize that communion is a signpost pointing to the day he will come back when our suffering, which has a shelf life, our disappointment, which is temporary, our grief will be gone and death will be defeated. Paul, in his next book, 2 Corinthians, says, therefore, we're not gonna lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away. Anybody feel like that? Raise your hand. Right? Yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Man, I, I don't know about you, I don't know, uh, but, but sometimes I feel that way. This week, for whatever reason, my joints, and I have a torn meniscus, and I have all these, I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm wasting away. Like, I just want to do the things I enjoy doing. He says, yep, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. They're light and momentary. They have a shelf life, is what he's saying, but they're achieving an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes that's this, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. He says, this is us constantly saying, we're gonna fix our eyes, has a shelf life. That basically the gospel says to the poor, you're not gonna be poor forever. Jesus is gonna return and triumph and you'll be at a feast called the marriage supper of the lamb. To the sick, he says, you're not gonna be sick forever. You're gonna suffer a little while and then the son of righteousness will come. The gospel says to the oppressed, you won't be oppressed forever. To the lonely, you won't feel abandoned. I'm coming. I prepared a place for you. Some of you, and I don't know who all is watching this, but some of you, I do know your stories, and you received a diagnosis this week or in the last few weeks, and your whole world has shifted. Some of you received news about your job in the last several weeks, and your whole world has shifted. For some of you, you're walking through the first season of life as a widow or a widower. And I think every time we take of the bread and the cup, we're like, hey, disappointment, suffering, hard times, and even death has a shelf life. It's a proclamation. He took my place, I have a place at the table. At this table, I recognize that what I'm facing right now has a shelf life. But it's way more than just a proclamation. Paul wants us to know it's a participation. Now stay with me. I need you to bear with me on this because there's two kind of different views of communion and I would suggest that both might have 
both do have their problems. First is some of you grew up and some of you are my friends and you're Catholic. And there's this Catholic view of communion where the actual bread and the cup turn into the actual body of, of Jesus and the blood of Jesus called transubstantiation. You forget that word, but, but that's the idea that the elements become both the body and the blood of Christ. And there's this soteriological grace, like this saving grace this, that, that happens as I partake of them. Now, I would suggest this with all due respect to some of your love, but that is totally in conflict with much of what the scriptures teach. When it talks about we are saved by grace through faith, it has nothing to do with anything I do. It is totally unmerited that it comes by believing Jesus Christ, Savior, Lord of my life, Romans 10. But, but can I suggest that there is a Protestant view that has become very individualistic and has, has made sure to say these are just symbols, and they are. They're symbols, but that's not all they are. And many times we get lost in a Protestant view in our individualistic worlds where these symbols lose their significance and their profundity. I think Paul says something in the chapter before 1 Corinthians 11, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Uh, that word is where we get our word communion, koinonia, fellowship, to contribute, which leads Paul to say this. Look what he says. So whenever whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, eh, you kind of mess the symbol up, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Let's just stop for a minute. We don't need to spend a lot of time here. But if he's going to write this, there's... It, this is not just a flippant symbol that sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. Uh, like he's saying to take this flippantly or unworthily is to sin against the very body and blood of Jesus. That sounds serious, profound. So what does it mean that it's a participation? Well, I think it means two things. It's a participation with Jesus. The bread and the cup are more than just, these are just more than just sterile symbols that we casually go through that's part of the, the, the liturgy or the routine, whatever tradition you're from. That somehow in some way that when we partake of the bread and the cup, we are experiencing, participating, communing with the Jesus who died for us and we are identifying with him. I write it this way, if you're taking notes, in communion, I identify with Jesus and his sacrifice for me that there is something deeply profound, that every time I take communion, something deeply personal, it's powerful, there's a powerful way in which I am experiencing, acknowledging, and identifying with the presence of Jesus in my life through the gospel. That communion is kind of the retelling of my rescue story. That communion is the renewal of my covenant vows. That communion is experiencing his presence in a profound, sacred, worship-filled way that he's always with us but in some way this captures my senses so that I remind myself of the power and the personal nature of the gospel communion recognizes that I was there and I relive that truth 
uh, some of you might have been here Good Friday. We did a thing Good Friday, had a big cross in the middle of the stage, and I was doing this thing where I was talking about the different people around the cross. I said, over here, there was uh, Mary and John, and there were the disciples and that Roman soldier. And I just went around the cross, all of the characters we read about in Scripture. And I kept walking through each character, and eventually, eventually I said, do you see that person over there in the shadows? Do you see their eyes kind of through the crowd? You can almost see people like, who's he talking about? What character in the Bible is that? And I walked over to where I was looking and I said, oh, that's me. You see, communion is a way for me to put myself right back at the foot of the cross and realize I'm identifying with Jesus in a sacrifice that is personal, that he gave his body for me and for you. But it's not just personal. I, I got to show you this. In, in this passage, there's a Greek word that Paul uses five times. It's the Greek word that is pronounced synerkomai, and it means this, to come together. Uh, remember, it was their coming together that Paul was addressing. That was the problem. And so he says this, for those who eat and drink without discerning, and then he uses this term, the body of Christ, and I think many commentators believe that what he's talking about here, since he doesn't talk about the blood of Christ, that he's talking about the body of Christ, the church. That, that he's saying, many of you are eating and drinking without taking into consideration the body. You eat and drink judgment on yourself. This makes sense to me. It's why they, Paul was addressing them. And it tells me something about communion is this identification with Jesus and his sacrifice but in communion, I identify with, and I belong to the family of the forgiven. Guys, the communion table reminds us that there are no worthy and unworthy participants, that we are all unworthy. That at the communion table and the communion service, the communion meal, the bread and the cup, how whatever your tradition, there's no place for religious and irreligious. There's no place for the spiritually superior and the spiritually inferior that at the communion table there is no delineation, rich and poor, black and white, men and women, Republican and Democrat, white collar and blue collar. There are no labels at this table. That we simply identify with the family of the forgiven. Those who've been saved by grace who have an eternal hope. And so we identify because we identify with Jesus and now we are who he says we are. Communion is a profound picture of unity. The church at Corinth was full of all kinds of divisions. We've been talking about that. Divisions over what was right and wrong, cultural divisions, class divisions, disagreements as Aiden taught us last week in the gray areas. And there will always be diversity in the church. Diverse ages and backgrounds and class and race and gender and political approaches. But a unity in Christ that outweighs any distinctions in secondary things. For the Corinthians, the one place that should have been 
The place where their unity was displayed the most was coming around the Lord's table and it accentuated their division. Guys, I'm going to be honest with you. My heart aches in our country right now. Not for what I see out there, but many people who call themselves followers of Christ and the divisiveness that happens even within churches over secondary issues around the bread and the cup. There's this humble unity. The body of Jesus is the church, is the one place that differences ought to be able to come together. Why? Because we're all part of the same family, the family of the forgiven. And it's that fact. The fact that communion is this proclamation and it's this unique participation with Jesus with the family that leads Paul to say it requires examination. He says something interesting here. He says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And then he goes on in the passage to even say some of them have gotten sick and some of them have gotten weak and some of them have even died. What I think I need to point out because some of you are reading this like, oh no, I'm unworthy. And so I probably shouldn't take communion. That's what some of you are thinking. And you, I've heard this talked about, preached. Quite frankly, I've heard people all over the place, but some of you might be thinking that, oh man, I'm unworthy. I shouldn't take communion. That's not what this is saying. Listen close to what, what I want to teach you. I need you to bear with me. It's so important if you're going to understand this passage that you understand English. Raise your hand if you did good in English in school. My hand's down. I, that was not my specialty. But you have to know the difference between an adjective and an adverb. This is an adverb. Here's the difference. An adjective describes the noun, the man. So an adjective would be, the unworthy man took communion. Some of you are like, I'm unworthy. But that's not what the verse says. The verse is an adverb. The man took communion unworthily. It describes how he took communion. This is so important because examination is me as an unworthy person realizing communion is for those of us who are unworthy. That's why we're saved by grace but I don't want to come and take it in a manner that's unworthy. That's why Paul says, examine yourselves. And it makes me think this, that if we're gonna examine ourselves, we're gonna exchange condemning the world for examining our hearts. That those who are part of the family of God are gonna exchange, pointing the finger, what's wrong out here for examining our own hearts. Paul alludes in verse 32 that the world and all who turn their back on Jesus will be condemned, but not by the church. God is the judge. And what his instruction here is, is that we as a church examine our hearts. I found this little quote that was in the 1960s by a black pastor 
He says, the thing that breaks my heart is that the Supreme Court, 1960s, is coercing pagans, that's people who wouldn't claim to be Christians, to act more Christian than the Bible is compelling Christians to act like Christians. In other words, Christians aren't taking their Bible serious and the gospel serious. He says, I can hardly stand it when I see the integration, that was the struggle in the 60s, being fought, not in the household of God, but in the buses, in the depots, and around the Woolworth tables. We're arguing about whether or not we can sit down and eat hamburgers and drink Cokes together when we ought to have been sitting around Jesus' table drinking the wine and eating the bread together. He's saying we need to examine here. The sit-ins never would have been necessary if Christians had been sitting down together in church as Christ's table, at Christ's table all these many years. He's saying that what happens is we can get so focused and saying what's this and they and try to legislate and morality that we stop examining ourselves and we have to examine ourselves. Well, what's the question we've got to ask ourselves? I'm saying, Jesus, would you expose the areas and the attitudes in our life where we're not in line with the bread and the cup? Would you expose that to us? I got to ask myself a series of questions. If you have a pen and paper, you ought to write some of these down. I got to ask myself, do I have a spirit of pride and self-righteousness? Am I living religiously and spiritually like I'm superior? To take the bread and the cup unworthily is to somehow think that you are worthy. Let me say that again. To take the bread and the cup unworthily is to somehow think that you're worthy. The gospel is for those who are not worthy. Or maybe I'd ask this question. Do I have a spirit of apathy going through the motions? No meaning, no passion. It's just a symbol where I've lost the astounding and mesmerizing gift of what this represents in Christ. How about this? Do I have a spirit of defiance? Have I submitted to Jesus in all areas of my life? Are there ways I'm living, attitudes I'm carrying, behaviors I'm engaging in that I know displeases Him and I'm defiant and will not surrender that to Him? <clears throat> That's what it means to take of the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. How about this? Do I have a spirit of division? J.D. Greer, a pastor, I think it's in North Carolina, said this, and I quote, Don't come to the communion table when your hearts are separated from others, some sort of pride or classism or racism. Don't come when you harbor resentment or unforgiveness in your heart. Don't come claiming to cherish the forgiveness of God when you won't forgive someone else. Don't come when you're divided from your brothers and sisters over some secondary, non-essential matter, maybe a political perspective or a cultural bias. He says this, some of you should not take of this table because you're more Republican than you are Jesus. Some of you should not take of this table because you're more Democrat than you are Jesus. And I say that because you can't stand someone who approaches politics different than you. Even if they love Jesus like you and agree on all the essentials, the authority of the Bible and what it teaches about morality and Jesus and orthodox. Even though you agree on all these things because they bring a different perspective or a different set of priorities with them when they come into the polls, you resent them. Truth is you hate them. You wish they'd go to another church and if they don't, well, you're thinking you probably should. Don't come to the table and harbor an attitude of division and resentment unbefitting of the body of Christ, that's to eat in an unworthy manner, he says. Jesus 
institute this. And Paul's like, listen, don't lose the power of the proclamation. He took my place at the cross so I could even have a place at his table. It's a proclamation of hope, my suffering, disappointment, even death has a shelf life. But it's way more than that. That every time we partake of this, we participate with Jesus in a profound way, in a personal way, retelling our rescue story with the family of the forgiven who we identify with. And so it's important that we examine ourselves. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. You might want to stop this and go get maybe a cup and crackers, bread, piece of bread. Uh, and I'm going to ask you just to pause the video and maybe take a chance to reflect and ask yourself some of these questions. Ask yourself, ask God to examine you. The psalmist said it this way, search my heart, O God, see if there's, like, am I living, is my attitudes, my life in line with the power of this picture? Go ahead and stop. Just take a minute and pray. Then as you come back, I'm going to ask you to take that bread with me and raise that bread, that cracker, and just simply say with me, Jesus, thank you for your body that was sacrificed for us. It's your sacrifice alone that makes it possible for us to be saved from our sin and belong to the family of the forgiven. And as you break that, I'm going to ask you to partake of that. Then I'm going to ask you to take the cup. And I'm going to ask you to out loud, wherever you're at, say this with me. Jesus, thank you for your blood that was shed for us because you took our place at the cross. We look forward to taking a seat at the table with you someday. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our place at the cross so we could have a seat at the table. Thank you that our disappointment and suffering has a shelf life. Thank you for loving us as a family of the forgiven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.